Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss the X-Men prequel series. Hello, hello, movie friends. How are we doing? This is Anthony. And this is James. Today we're going to finish up our X-Men week and talk about the prequel films, X-Men First Class, X-Men Days of Future Past, X-Men Apocalypse, and X-Men Dark Phoenix. It's a lot of movies. Quite a few. And just like the original series, there are some really good ones in this mix, and there are also some some misses. I think with X-Men... I think it's hard to crack the code for a movie for it. I think it's pretty difficult um, given how many characters there are and trying to pay service to the fans who love the eclectic group of um, characters they have in the comics, trying to fit them into movies. So every movie you're adding new ca- new characters, adding new mutants. So I think it's a lot to get a hold of. So I think on the ones that they pull it off, like X-Men Days of Future Past, it's a really fantastic movie. And then something like Dark Phoenix, really missed the mark. And also, this series, we saw Matthew Vaughn and Simon Kimberg come into the director's chairs. Yeah, so obviously the MCU and Marvel has been able to figure that out with all of their 47 films in the last three years. So they, <laughs> they figure out all the team-ups and all the new films and all the new characters really well. I mean, Shang-Chi was great, Guardians of the Galaxy are great, obviously, and so they pretty much only put out hits, which is pretty great for that entire franchise. And now they own X-Men, and they own 20th Century Fox, so Disney. So now we'll see maybe... Post Dark Phoenix, if they start to connect the X Men into the MCU and into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which would be pretty cool. It seems like they'll that's probably going to be happening five years from now because they're doing the Phase Four right now. Marvel is with uh, Wanda and all these new heroes they've been establishing, and then I think once they finish Phase Phase Four, Phase Five will be X Men yeah, integration. I think they hinted at a possible like with an Easter egg at the end of Dark Phoenix, like oh they're going to start joining the MCU. But I, I think that's just like. For fun, I don't know if it was confirmed yet because mm. they didn't buy 20th Century Fox until 2019. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. So for 100 and what 60 billion dollars or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, Dark Phoenix, I believe, was the movie that was made after the merger. Okay, is what I, is what I think how it went. So they they bought they bought uh, Fox and then Fox made Dark Phoenix to finish up the X Men franchise they had established. So it happened the same year in 2019. Yeah, okay, and then now Disney is going to be overseeing the entire thing. So that movie was already in production before yeah. the merger and everything, and so before they bought the property, obviously. And I think ultimately another strength to this series is they've always been well cast, and they added another great group of actors for the younger versions of the mutants. Especially, I think that obviously the th- the highlights of this entire series for the prequel franchise are James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, and, of course, Jennifer Lawrence. I think they're the three highlights of the films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I mean, you got to try to cast equal actors to Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. I think they did a terrific job with James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender. They're incredible actors. Yeah, and do you remember the original posters for First Class that they were, like, the worst posters ever made? I don't think so. They got ridiculed online because Fox made these posters where it was uh, just the, the shapes of Xavier and Magneto, the older ones, and it was just blacked, blacked out. And then the heads of McAvoy and Fassbender were put inside of the shadow. And it was just like their heads were floating in this dark. Who came up space. with that idea? And it, they got destroyed online, so they had to change their marketing campaign. <laughs> but they, they were great choices for both, the, both of those respective oh, yeah, actors. Absolutely. But I think the biggest strength of all the prequels, besides Days of Future Past, which is kind of its hybrid film because it's combining both, is the lack of Logan. Because we love Logan. He's a fan favorite. He's our favorite character in the X-Men. 
but he can't save the movie. He can't save the day in every single X-Men movie. You need other lead characters. And now it was crucial for Logan to take a backseat in the prequel storylines outside of Days of Future Past because he's the lead basically of that film. But they needed the first film especially and the other one, um, X-Men Apocalypse, to not be about him. His cameos are excellent. But the guy can't save the world every time. And Dark Phoenix was actually the first X-Men movie without him in it. Mm-hmm. He had been, Hugh Jackman had been in every single X-Men movie up until Dark Phoenix because he had retired the character in 2017 with Logan before Dark Phoenix came out. So he was done by then. And also it wouldn't make sense timeline-wise because he meets them all in 2000 or yeah. 2000, A lot of things yeah. don't fully make sense timeline-wise once you start dealing with Days of Future Past. Then you're mm-hmm. going back to to um, Apocalypse, which is kind of like, is basically the sequel to First Class, but like Days of Future Past didn't happen, I guess. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of odd. And I think ultimately the biggest con to the prequel series is the villains. Sebastian Shaw, played by Kevin Bacon in First Class, is an awesome villain. I yeah, think he's he, great. I think he did a fantastic job. And I think he's the only really great villain of the entire prequel series. I like Trask. I like Peter Dinklage as okay, Trask. Okay, yeah. Oh, never mind. He's good. He's great. He's a good villain. I'm sorry. So the Days other of two. Future Past. So Apocalypse and um, Jessica Chastain's alien character and essentially Jean Grey in, in Dark Phoenix were big misses for villains. But I think that the villains in the originals were always pretty strong villains in the, yeah. in the original trilogy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I get that. Well, besides the fact that, you know, we talked about how in Last Stand, how the two storylines of Dark Phoenix with the vaccine and then the villain there is like pick one, you yeah. know, pick one yeah. antagonist to the film. But I do think the strength of the prequel series is how much, how important Mystique was because in the original trilogy, Mystique, she was always, you know, Magneto's number one um, soldier, didn't have much dialogue, didn't really have a plot. She was always serving in Magneto, but in these films, they make Mystique a very central, very important, and emotionally resonant character. And Jennifer Lawrence was great as Mystique. And it was nice to see her more fleshed out because she didn't really have any kind of character development at all in the original trilogy. She seemed to be the same static character from 1, 2, and 3. But Jennifer Lawrence got to do a lot with their role this time. Yeah, she's great. Although I do like Rebecca's Mystique, Mystique a little better than Jennifer her Lawrence's. Mistake. Her Mystique. <laughs> I think it was more. it was more fun. And I think also, you know, she's, well, yeah, because she had the she had more combat fun. And, yeah, and the, it, it's really different the mystique in the prequels versus the mystique who's like fully formed in the in the original trilogy, where she seems more evil and nefarious and more mm-hmm. on Magneto's side, where she's constantly ambiguous, sort of like Magneto and Eric in terms of their 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 moral compass and are they a villain? Are they a hero? Mystique has a huge role to play in the prequel, for the the first three films because they kill her off eventually in Dark Phoenix real quick. But um, I, I like how she has so much more to do for sure. But I do prefer Rebecca's performance more. And I also, I really love in Days of Future Past, she is the key to everything. Yeah. Like she is the, the driving force of the entire story. She's arguably the lead character in that film yeah. besides Logan. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, so let's get into it. But actually... Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast, where you get awesome perks like podcast schedules, personalized videos, Patreon shoutouts on the podcast for top-tier patrons, as well as weekly bonus episodes, which post every single Wednesday. We also just launched our podcast masterclass online course yesterday. So for anyone who wants to start a podcast or wants to improve their current podcast, our 22-chapter, 46-lesson course will give you all 
all of the secrets of how we do everything behind the scenes. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or just go to our website, raidersofthelostpodcast.com. You'll find the link right there on the homepage. And right now for the first week, you can use our coupon code PODCAST10 to get 10% off this online course. It only lasts for a week, but after that, you won't have a free discount, but we'll do like a holiday discount. Who knows? Um, make sure to follow, subscribe wherever you're listening and watching around the world. Hit the notification bell, and thank you so much for tuning in. Now, before we, could, before we begin, what's your favorite film of these four movies? Well, my favorite X-Men film of all of them is X-Men Days of Future Past. I think it is the pinnacle of the potential of the X-Men series and franchise. I think it's the best film adaptation. It's a very complicated story. And somehow the filmmakers and writers managed to pull off this incredible blending of the old and the new. Just seeing scenes like having Patrick Stewart and James McAvoy sharing a scene together uh, is really remarkable. Logan is, I think it's the, besides the movie Logan, I think this is Logan's best role in the in the uh, X-Men franchises. And I just love the idea of the time travel. It's not hokey. They came up with a great concept of Kitty being able to transport a mind back in time. And also, it's a very complex plot, but they establish it within the first two minutes by showing you an example of Kitty sending the other mutants back in time. Um, I can't, what's his name? I can't remember his name. Sending him back Bishop. in time. I bet Bishop back in time. And that tells us how the story is going to unfold. So it's like a very smart way of, like Chris Nolan, showing you an example of whatever the concept is. And then now that the audience understands it, this is what the movie is. And I had no trouble at all following it. And again, Peter Dinklage is a great villain. And also the Sentinels were something that we always wanted to see. And they really pulled it off with Days of Future Past. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're probably right. This is the most epic of the X-Men franchise. It's 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. This came out in 2014, directed by Brian Singer. And this is when X-Men send Wolverine in the, to the past in a desperate effect, effort to change history. And Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply prevent an event that results in doom for both humans and mutants and the cast is absurd there's so many amazing scenes in this film Trask again is a great villain Mystique has so much to do arguably the lead character she has a lot in terms of the plot development because she's the reason why the Sentinels are invented in the first place and also the reason why they're able to get her powers of shape-shifting and adapting to environments of whatever the enemy they're fighting is I also love the concept of Logan going back in time because Charles can't because Logan's the only one who can survive. But when we go back in time with Logan, he's like now vulnerable. He doesn't have his adamantium skeleton, but he's still Wolverine. Like he still won't die from bullet wounds to his body. They just kind of repel out of him still. But 
the no, no no adamantium makes him a little more vulnerable than usual. I love his bone claws; they're so fun to watch. And the I think the best part about Days of Future Past is Wolverine isn't the wild card anymore. The wild card is Charles and Eric in this film. Yeah, I think that so in in terms of that no adamantium, you really notice that when Wolverine attacks the Sentinel and his claws just get stuck in it, rather than you're used to him, he can slice through everything. So even he's not even used to it. You know, he's finding himself surprised at how limited he is, but. The entire relationship between Eric and Charles is really the entire heart of the prequel franchise. Yeah, for sure. And McAvoy and Fassbender are really excellent together. Their chemistry is perfect, and they really... It was hard. Like, how could you compare anyone to Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen and somehow these two great actors did because they weren't the legendary heavyweights that the elders are, but they, at this time, at first-class casting, up-and-coming rising stars now they're 10 years later they're a couple of the best actors working in the world and they're a couple of my favorite actors and seeing them like seeing them in first class i really love how the writers brought them together because i was always curious how do they meet um because in x-men the first one they had obviously a long-standing relationship they've known each other for like 40 50 years but i think they did a great job in the first one x-men first class by showing that uh, the way they met was Charles actually saved Eric's life when Magneto was trying to take down Sebastian Shaw's submarine, and he was going to drown just from the fury. He was kind of he kind of got like bloodlust, wasn't thinking clearly, and he was being taken underwater trying to stop the submarine. And it, Charles literally jumped into the water and got him to let go and release the submarine, saving his life. And that established their first uh, ever meeting. I thought that was a really great way for these two iconic characters to meet. Yeah, and because they, like Magneto or Eric, didn't really know that there were other mutants out there at the time too, which was really interesting. He's like, I thought I was alone. He's like, you're not alone. Yeah, because he's kind of been on this uh, hunt, taking down every Nazi that was in charge of the camp that he was Solo stuck mission, in. Yeah. yeah. So he's a lone was, wolf. It, it's really great. And I feel like they did a really great, in first class, great reference to his famous Inglorious Bastard scene with the three beers inside of that bar. In, the German bar. Yeah, the German in, bar. I think it's in? Cuba. Yeah, or it might, some, or, it's a Spanish comp, Spanish-speaking country. I can't remember exactly. Portugal or something, something like, like that. that. Um, but I think that they definitely referenced it. <laughs> Whatever it is. <laughs> Whatever it is. I think that that might be my one of my favorite scenes in the entire X-Men franchise when he kills those two Nazis. And then you, what's really cool about Magneto in this is, in the entire series, is there are times when he kills without using his powers. Just like in that mo in that moment, for example, he could kill them with he could kill the last Nazi with the gun, just like make make it go through him. But instead, he gets his power, brings the gun to his hand, and then he physically does the shooting. I think that adds a personal element to when he kills people. It happens every once in a while in the entire prequel prequel series. He didn't never he never did that in the original trilogy. It adds that element of like I want to feel what it's like to kill someone with my bare hands. Yeah, and so X Men First Class came out in 2011, directed by Matthew Vaughn, who's an exceptional director. He might be the best director of all the filmmakers who made X Men films. And this is 86% of Ron Tomatoes. If this film didn't work, the X Men franchise may have died. Because X3 was not that great, it left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths, so they needed a great film. This movie has a very solid plot. Cuban Missile Crisis is involved, JFK, it's like real events, real world events are put into this X-Men world, which is great because, like, I, I like X-Men Days of Future Past. Well, you know, the, the first one. First class? First class, it takes place in the 1960s. 
which is basically, you know, the atomic age when the X-Men comics were first being invented and the characters were being created. So okay. it kind of is a harkens back to the origins of X-Men themselves. So that's mm-hmm. why I like it so much. I love the settings of the 1960s. They don't overdo it. It's just very playful and fun. The themes are great throughout the entire franchise, especially in this one with oppression, the Jews during the 1940s by the Nazis in Germany, uh, minorities in Western cultures in America. And I love the origin stories of Magneto, Charles, and Mystique. And I think Magneto throughout the entire prequel franchise is the most interesting character in in total. Besides Apocalypse, where... he is used as like the emotional backbone of that film, which I think was a mistake. But overall, I love his story throughout the franchise of the prequels where he's ambiguous. He goes back and forth between being a hero, being a villain, ultimately becoming a villain. And we see all the events that take place in his life to make him the exact opposite of Charles. Although they, he thinks they want the same thing, but they want different means to get that. Yeah, they have different ideas, ideologies, but yeah, the Magneto, same goal. Ma- Magneto wants control and power over the humans because of what they've done to him his entire life versus yeah. Charles wanting peace. But I, def- I think that his character arc is the best of the franchise. But I th- I agree with you about Apocalypse where they, they set up... Magneto's been a villain. He became a villainous character at the end of Days of Future Past. Like It was like he's the... You're like, oh, this guy's going to be the big bad yeah. for the next one. And then Apocalypse... Now he's got a family. He's kind of living like a, a undisclosed life as as a nobody, working in a steel mill, and it kind of felt like a ripoff of X Men Origins Wolverine because Logan's do it. He has a he has a wife, and he is uh, what do you guy call people who chop wood? Lumberjack. Lumberjack. Yeah, he's a lumberjack. <laughs> and then also it kind of it was reminiscent of Hawkeye scene in old Age of Ultron where we find out he had a family and they go hide out at his cabin, and it just didn't f- suit. The direction of Magneto's storyline from the first two films from First Class and Days of Future Past. And now he's just like a family guy. And I think obviously they did that. They set this up because they wanted to make him the emotional beat of the story. Also, how do you turn Magneto fully bad? He wasn't he's a villain by the end of Days of Future Past, but he's not like a genocidal want to kill as many humans as possible kind of man. You can tell like he's he's getting there, but he's not quite there. Because in, by the original trilogy, he despises humans and he wants them all gone, or at least changed to mutants. And so I did not, I did not like how they set up his character in Apocalypse. Mystique probably should have been the emotional heartbeat of that film. That probably would have worked better. And also, there is a big problem with Magneto's storyline in Days of Future Past. I mean, not Days of Future Past in Apocalypse, where he literally destroys the city. He destroys the city like breaks a bridge full of cars like he kills it has to be thousands and thousands of people oh it's way more than that it could be even it's millions happening on the entire planet yeah it could be millions of people that he kills when he's changing the, 100%. he's affecting the magnetic field of earth itself and then at the end of the movie they just let him leave like like he's oh free. He, he helped stop this he helped having... stop the apocalypse but he still willingly murdered millions of people and so that left a really bad taste in my mouth where it was like who, who it doesn't make sense that like tra- him and Charles have like a cute conversation. They're not f- friends anymore, but Charles like lets him go, and it's like this guy is a mass murderer now. How can you let him go? He's he's a ho- he killed so many people, and then they just like yeah, see you next time. It's, it's pretty wild. That's one of my biggest problems yeah. with X Men Apocalypse, which was you could say the direct sequel to X Men First Class. Forty seven percent Rotten Tomatoes came out in two thousand sixteen. This is set in nineteen eighty three. 
what I like about Apocalypse, though, is we get the expansion of all the powers that we wanted. But yeah, just to stay on Magneto for a little bit in this film, where, like, we, like we've been talking about, he's the emotional backstory. It doesn't make sense why he's in hiding, why he's trying to live a normal life. At the end, like you said in First Class, he hates humanity. At the end of First Class, he, it seems like he came into him his own. As yeah, Magneto. he's like Magneto. Yeah. Because he does, he puts on the helmet, the purple yeah. gear, and he saves Emma Frost from prison to, yeah. like, now I'm, now I'm going to form my... My ragtag of supervillains is going to be great, but now he's good, and his daughter gets killed. He's questioning his purpose in life, like, am I a killer? He's, like, kind of questioning God in a way. You know, he's, like, screaming up to the skies. He, um, like I said, he's hiding on a steel mill until he uses his powers to save a guy, and then he gets found out, and the cops try to take him out, and he kills the cops after they kill his daughter. With Magneto serving as the emotional backbone of the film, it's a mistake, I think, because it's. Sh- I think it should have been more focused on Jean Grey. Mm-hmm. Because oh yeah, yeah, make her the emotional backbone of X Men Apocalypse, as well as conflicting with Dark Phoenix inside her until she finally lets her it out to defeat Apocalypse. Because she saves the world, she defeats Apocalypse at the end of the film. But the whole film, all she does is like hanging out with the teenagers, going to the mall, and doing Stranger yeah. Things stuff. It's like. What's the point of her having being the hero at the end if she has no emotionality for the entire plot of the film? They cared more about her and Scott meeting and having a connection and um, a romance than they did actually about like diving into the character. She, yeah, she should have yeah. been the emotional backbone. Her turmoil, like I love the opening scene of the opening sequences of that film where you know Xavier's Institute has been going on for several years now. He has a bunch of new students. Um, this is one of my favorite versions of Xavier. He's very charming, very intelligent. We see more of his powers. But, you know, he has these new students where Cyclops, Scott is like the first one shown how he gets his powers through puberty in high school. And then Jean Grey is like sets the her bedroom, like starts to melt the walls of her bedroom and stuff like that. So I think it's really interesting showing, you know, the origins of these characters that we love so much. But they do it in an interesting way, I think. And again, Professor X is like teaching these young mutants how to control their powers. Um and the exploration of powers is the best part of Apocalypse because they do a good job of it in Days of Future Past and First Class where, you know, Xavier helps everyone tap into their potential, even Magneto's potential. And then Days of Future Past, it's like an all-out war with the Sentinels. But then in Apocalypse, after Apocalypse, we'll just call him that Oscar Isaac's villain. Yeah, I can't, starts, I can't remember his real he name. He starts enhancing everybody's powers. And so... We get to see everyone's powers to their fullest abilities. Like, I've always wanted to see what, like, Magneto could move the earth and, like, could mm-hmm. move mountains. And he, he kind of does to an extent. We get to see more of his powers. Charles, we see more of his powers where he actually freezes entire rooms full of people. He takes memories from people. He controlled their thoughts more, which I've always wanted. Like, I love Patrick Stewart as Xavier and Professor X in the first three the original three, but he doesn't have a ton of powers besides reading people's minds and using Cerebro, whereas in Apocalypse, we see him do all sorts of great stuff like that. And then Mystique, I like in this film where she's kind of like this hero to like the, in this underground world of mutants. Um, both her, her and Hank are hiding their blue and their true identity. But the thing with Mystique in Apocalypse is she gives like 17 emotional <laughs> speeches and I'm like, is she like the captain of the football team? Like, what's going on? Like, another another Mystique emotional so, speech. So many all right. pep talks. All right, all right, Mystique. I get it. So I many get pep it. talks. Like, too many pep talks. 
Speaking of mutants, you might need to get your grooming situation under control before you start looking like Beast himself. So get some new products from Manscaped, including their Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping on your entire order today from Manscaped.com. Manscaped has also been launching some new products this month. So we just got in their shampoo and two-in-one conditioner and also their body wash, which are incredibly smell great. We've been using them in the shower. I'm telling you, it's so much better than the the blue gunk that you get from the other stuff. I don't even know what that's made of. Who knows? And they also have some more stuff coming out, not this year, but in January that they were launching that we can't wait to show you because they're expanding their line to even more male grooming products and just overall health and and body products for men. Um, I recommend getting your hands on their new Performance Package 4.0, which is basically just a bundle of stuff like their groomer, their their uh, weed whacker, some men's wipes. They also they have deodorizers, boxer briefs, super comfortable. T-shirts are very comfortable. So join the over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with their grooming needs with this exclusive offer from us, Raiders of the Lost, at checkout for 20% off and free shipping worldwide from Manscaped.com. It's the holiday season. You got to get a gift for the man in your life. Go to Manscaped. I'm telling you, it's stuff he'll actually use. And if you're watching on YouTube or on social media, you may have noticed that Anthony and I have some brand new laptops on our desks. These are courtesy of LG, the LG 17-inch Gram Ultra Lightweight Laptops. The cool thing about these laptops is their 16 by 10 aspect ratio versus 16 by 9, which means more vertical space. Great for editing, great for note-taking, but most importantly, amazing for watching movies and TV. I just binged the entire show of Succession in like two weeks, and I watched it all on my LG Gram laptop, and it looks so incredible. The displays are crisp, they're vibrant, they're amazing. Not to mention they're shockingly light. They honestly feel hollow. I can't believe how light they are. It's crazy. Like they float if you let go of them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't don't drop your laptop. We'll put links for the 16-inch and 17-inch LG Gram laptop models in our YouTube bio. Thank you so much for LG for sponsoring the show. The big problem with Apocalypse is Apocalypse himself. And it was just like... You when want you, to talk about villains now? Let's Yeah. Let's, well, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go on villains. Let's, do, let's dive on villains. So Apocalypse as a villain... Seems seemed very exciting from the trailer, but poor Oscar Isaac. I mean, I read stories and in interviews where he's like, he had to wear this giant suit and he they had to lubricate it inside of the suit. So he, was, he had gel on top of his body and then he had to wear this super giant heavy suit that he could barely move in and then like six hours of makeup. And ultimately the role was not that great and mm-hmm. the character was just really disappointing. There's a, when you have a villain... It's a mistake to make your villain's motivation wanting to enslave the entire world or to destroy the world. Like it, His motivation, I was never really behind. I understand that he was worshipped as a god, and now that he's in this new world, he, he he's not a god anymore. He wants to be a god and worshipped. And I mean, that's kind of a, a decent motivation, but not really. I don't really know anything about the character. And also, his powers, you can never, you don't really know what his powers are. It seems like he could just do anything. And if he can do anything, why does he even need four horsemen to help him out? Like, yeah. what, what's the like? He can he does stuff that is like inexplicable, and it's like, what can't he do? And then yet he still needs help. And he, and half most of his scenes are him just standing, talking to other people with his horsemen standing behind him in like a perfect pyramid. And it was just like his character had no development. Had it was very uninteresting character. And poor, I mean, I love Oscar Isaac. But I think he was stuck in this really bland role. Yeah, and Sabah Nur, who we'll just call Apocalypse. He's the world's first mutant, and his powers are insane. He 
gains powers or he gains new powers by taking over powers of other mutants. So you can maybe say that was one of his original powers where he can transfer his consciousness into another mutant to get their powers and absorb everything. So he's probably got this collection of a thousand different powers or something like that. Who knows how many lifetimes he's lived, how many mutants powers he's taken. Um, he's a prophesied being, again, the four horsemen, which I like the aspect of like the real mythology and ancient history ancient history yeah. and like mutants are the reason for all those myths and stuff which is really interesting powers are endless i like the scene where he like learns through the about the world through like the television and through satellites and stuff like that um he keeps talking about himself as like a god and how he calls everyone his children even mutants he calls his children he wants to set everybody free. I like how he expands people's powers because that's what I've always wanted. I've always wanted to see the potential of Storm, especially. I don't love the origin of Storm here where she starts off as a villain but then becomes good. Like, at the end of the film, she's like, I think I'll stay here at the It's Institute. too much of a turn on a dime. Yeah, it's like, yeah. right. Like, you were just helping try to take over the entire planet. Like, I know he gave you all these extra powers, but still. I do like stuff like that. Storm, we finally see her potential of her powers. And in terms of what Apocalypse does throughout the entire film is after he learns about humanity and he decides to disarm all countries of their nuclear weapons, what, what about all the other weapons in the world? Like, yeah, nukes are the most powerful things that countries possess for destruction. They possess plenty of other weapons to use, so why not disarm all weapons, I mm -hmm. guess? And, like, again, why does he need four horsemen? He's pow his powers are limited. Why doesn't he just take their powers? And at the end of the film, it's not like they help help him save the day. They all fail in their missions. And they yeah. all either betray him or, or can't win their fights. Yeah, and two so of them turned on him. Magneto and Storm turned on him. He literally spends... Well, does, I don't think... Oh, yeah, Storm yeah. starts to fight back. You're right. Yeah. Um, and also, in terms of his powers, I understand that he can take. he's taken mutants' powers in the past, but it seems as though he always has the perfect power to help him in whatever situation is next. It always is like, oh, the perfect power to like tap into this television and plug into all technology and now I can do this and now I can do that. So it seems like they're just, it's too like helpful for him. He's in too much of a rush too. Yeah. I, I, oh yeah, definitely. I understand the concept of why he needs the four horsemen to like protect him while he does the transfer of his, 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 his being into another mutant. I get that. Like, he wants to make sure no one messes it up like Nightcrawler does. But, you know, and he finds Professor X, and he, oh, this is remarkable. <laughs> this is exactly what I've needed. <laughs> Access to everybody's brain. I get it. You want it. You want control over everyone's mind. I understand that's what a super evil mutant villain wants to do, to become a full-fledged god. Um, what's the rush? <laughs> Chill out. Build your pyramid. Relax. Maybe build a couple more pyramids, take over the world, and then you know once all the mutants are fully weak, then then take Professor X's power. You don't need to like you're impatient, Apocalypse. <laughs> take your time. There's no rush. No one can literally stop you. It, it happens in like a day and a half. It's ridiculous. He just he's go 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 go. But before the before the third act and the final, he just stands around. He's like, oh, I found another mutant. Let's come hang out with me. It's it's like he's collecting Pokemon and never even uses them. Exactly. And also, if you're gonna try and take over the world, I I don't, I don't understand. Like, obviously, it would make more sense to try and to corrupt the leaders of the world to be on your side. That would help you in your endeavor to take over everything and to as eventually enslave everyone. I think his lack of using resources. And, I mean, even creating allies was kind of just like a missed opportunity. And he, and you, the only time we first see his powers used incredibly is when he builds the pyramid. 
out yeah. of scratch, which is crazy. His powers are cool, but we only get little glimpses of them. I wish we saw more of what he could do earlier on. He, like, puts people inside different types of matter and stuff like that and, like, sinks them into floors and walls, which is cool, but, like, can we see some more stuff? It reminds me of Thanos. Like, he just has all... Once he has the all the gems... What are they called? <laughs> the Infinity Stones? Infinity Stones. <laughs> <laughs> Huge Marvel head over here. Wow. Wow, man. The gems. The, the, the he's got gems. He's, he's got the bedazz, bedazzled <laughs> bracelet, right? <laughs> the Michael Jackson bedazzled glove. What's that called? Oh, the gauntlet. Yeah, with the Infinity Stones. Bonehead. <laughs> but I, I think that... Obviously, Apocalypse was, a, I think, a ultimately a disappointing villain. But the movie itself, it does have good moments. Yeah. It's, it's not a terrible yeah. movie. It had a lot of potential. I think that's ultimately the problem is the lack of potential. Like, that final battle was just, like, kind of meh. Whereas you take the villain in the first film, Sebastian Shaw, really fun. Kevin Bacon, great to see him as a bad guy. His first scene is excellent when he finally discovers Magneto, young Magneto's powers when Eric is a little kid. I really love that scene. It even tops the original scene in X-Men 1, I think. All right, let's talk about Sebastian Shaw, who is an excellent villain in X-Men First Class. Really good choice because in the movie universe, he's one of the best villains because he is an actual huge threat to the world. You know, yeah. Trask is a threat to mutants, but he doesn't have powers. He's not a mutant. But Sebastian Shaw, I love how we find out eventually that he is a mutant because he see at first we think he's just a human when uh, in the Nazi uh, camp. And, yeah. you know, he taps into Magneto's potential as a child by killing his mother which is terrible and magneto's journey with being in the prison camp then you can assume that he worked for the nazis or was imprisoned and and tortured and used by the nazis for maybe a decade or longer as through his entire entire teenage years well so the character of sebastian shaw is based on a real nazi who experimented on children and experimented with eugenics because the nazis were obsessed with creating the perfect race of human beings in their eyes the aryan race and so they were using all sorts, all sorts of science and eugenics um, ideas to try and create a race, and so that that essentially is where they jumped off for this character. Really great, really great take. Yeah, and I love his power where he possesses the ability to absorb energy and transform it into his own raw strength, and he can use that energy however he wants, which is super fascinating and makes him a threat for sure to all the X Men in the entire world. Yeah, how do you stop that? It's yeah. a great, great villain. And also in Origins, I mean, and also in First Class, the world doesn't really know about mutants yet, which is really interesting. We get little glimpses of senior officials and governments finding out that mutants exist which is super fun i like that a lot because you know now they're coming into the world and we fully see that in days of future past when we go back in time and mystique is caught on the camera mm -hmm. on the film camera in her true blue form but again Sebastian, i like the true blue yeah, <laughs> true blue form. it's like jet blue true blue <laughs> <laughs> although her her mystique's blue is a little too blue in these ones versus to, to royal blue no yeah. like i like like royal blue's darker blue uh -huh. like just i mean uh, rebecca remains blue is like uh -huh. that dark dark blue which i liked a lot whereas jennifer lawrence's is it's too vibrant i think i, th I think i definitely like the the design of Rebecca remains better. It for seems sure. like they streamlined Jennifer Lawrence's mystique to make it faster, so she she could do more lines and dialogue. Whereas Rebecca M remains, it took nine hours to apply her full mystique outfit and costume. Yeah, and also they put Jennifer Lawrence in clothes sometimes, especially in the latter films. So she's they probably just did her hands and face. So yeah. and also like Jennifer Lawrence by Dark Phoenix is one of the biggest stars alive, and so she had a lot of sway. So I'm sure she was like, I'm not doing 
six hours of makeup, I'll do an hour and a half of makeup. Plus, you could, maybe out. that's one of the reasons why Mystique became such a huge character plot-wise in the rest of the films because Jennifer Lawrence, I'm, I know she's huge now, but she was like the biggest actress on the planet for like 10 years that entire decade. Jennifer Lawrence made $65 million in one year. That's insane. $65 million. Oscar winner, all yeah. sorts of great movies. So like she was a superstar when these films were coming out. I also think that that's why she was killed so early in Dark Phoenix because... I think ultimately Mystique is a great role, but I you could say maybe Jennifer Lawrence was tired of it. You know, it's a lot of work. Oh, you could tell. And she this, didn't want to be there. Yeah, the fourth, <laughs> the fourth by the fourth time around, all that makeup. I think it was getting to her. That's why she's always wearing clothes in Dark Phoenix, and she's killed off so soon. I think Jennifer Lawrence might have been like, just kill me off, just just kill me. <laughs> and so uh, my guess is that's why she died so early in Dark yeah, Phoenix. Yeah, that's what I assume. She's, like, she's I like, I don't want to do this anymore. I, she's like, I, I don't have to do 10 hours of makeup for six months anymore. I'm done. So, I'm Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, I'm Jennifer, exactly. But Sebastian Shaw, again, a great villain, and he's got Emma Frost, who is a an iconic count, uh, comic book character from the X-Men franchise. She has great power. She's a telepath like Xavier, except not as powerful of a telepath. Um, but she can also create herself into a diamond form, so which which means an increased strength and durability. Uh, from what I've read, the comic fans were disappointed with the film's portrayal of her. But I think Gen uh, January Jones did a terrific job, and I think Kevin Bacon is awesome in this movie as Sebastian Shaw. Yeah, I think January Jones was oversexualized. Is what the biggest problem with the character is. Emma Frost is just always showing cleavage in tight outfits and showing a lot of skin. So I think. That was the biggest con to her character. Well, her combo character always does like wear like a crop top or a bra, so she's always showing a lot of skin in the comics. But again, it's a movie; it's different. You yeah. don't have to do the the exact interpretation. I, I think it was a little too much of that. I think for so sure. too, because and then they the the scenes of the woman with the the lingerie. It's like this is a little too much sexualization. Yeah, going exactly. On. So there's Rose Byrne. Like, there's no reason for her to like do that either. It's like in Star Trek uh, Into Darkness. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Like she just like uh, I can't remember the actress's name. Alice Eve. She had she went she had to go in a bra and underwear for, for no, no reason. reason. <laughs> she just took her clothes off for the trailer. For, yeah, for the trailer, and it was just like trying to get some sex appeal for people. But I mean, I think that studios don't understand. Like people just want to see the superheroes. <laughs> like, I know a lot, young boys want to watch this these movies because of the superheroes. You like, know, yeah. If you want to throw sex into a movie, throw it into another movie that doesn't already have a huge fan base. You know what I mean? They don't <laughs> they don't need to do that in these. The appeal is already there. You know what I mean? All right, and so Sebastian Shaw, he's using the Cuban Missile Crisis to get power over nations, and he wants the missiles of Russia to be put in Cuba yeah. to create a war, and he wants to be the heart of that war. It's a great setup because you throw in the Cold War aspect plus the war room, which is obviously an exact homage re replica of Stanley Kubrick's war room, which is a lot of fun. It's the exact same set. I thought that was really great by Matthew Vaughn paying homage to that, and— I Ultimately, it's a great blend of political drama into a superhero film. It's probably the best that's been done in terms of throwing politics into a movie and um, international disputes. They did a really great job pulling it off. And I really love the, the third act of this movie when the mutants are trying to stop it. And then eventually uh, Charles gets a hold of Sebastian Shaw and freezes him. And Magneto, this is when Magneto shows his true colors. It's a really amazing scene where Charles thinks that Magneto is going to, you know, de de um, incapacitate Sebastian Shaw, but his plan is to kill the man who killed his mother. And it's a great moment where Charles 
he can't he decides to just keep holding on to Shaw while Magneto slowly pushes a quarter that same coin right through his skull. And they did Matthew Vaughn did a great shot where he did um, exact replica shots of um, the camera tracking across Sebastian Shaw's head and Charles Xavier's head, showing that Charles seems to be experiencing the pain that Sebastian Shaw would be feeling if he wasn't frozen. So I really love that moment. Yeah, it's one of the best death scenes in the entire franchise. Yeah. Magneto in general is such a badass yeah. in X-Men First Class. He's always a badass, but this one in particular, like the themes that he has, his music. He's a Nazi hunter. It's, it's yeah. so cool. His, his, his music's great. I love the guitar theme. It's incredible. And so I, I think Eric and Charles' relationship is so well explored in all these films. And, and I think Xavier's mis- biggest mistake with, with Eric is he over underestimates, underestimates the evil and the rage that fulfills Magneto's mind at all times. And he thinks he can help him suppress it, but he never can. Um, let's talk about Trask as the villain mm-hmm. in X-Men Days of Future Past. And, and so this is Peter Dinklage coming off of Game of Thrones fame. Excellent villain, Peter yeah. Dinklage, very memorable in the entire franchise because he's the one who is responsible for creating the Sentinels, which created this post-apocalyptic world that the mutants are currently living in. And I love the character. It's a He did a really great job with the role. Peter Dinklage is a super talented actor, actor, and he obviously won several Emmys and Golden Globes, so I think he was a great choice for a villain, also a surprising choice. And I read that Peter Dinklage even said that when he got the role, he said that he considers himself to be kind of a mutant because he said he said with my dwarfism, my I myself am a, I'm a bit of a mutant. I can't move metal or anything, but I thought of it as like a self-loathing um, perception of myself. Deep down, Trask is quite sensitive about the aspect of his size, so I think that he brought that to the character. And I think he was a perfect choice for a villain. Yeah, and so Trask wants to eliminate all mutants in the entire world. Just another, you know, one of these government agency heads who just wants his program funded and he has the sentinel program and he's creating these giant robots to defend the world and defend america against mutants because most of the governments of the world think that mutants are a danger to society and they have to somehow prevent themselves from becoming extinct because they know that evolution means that the previous species are gonna die they're gonna there's there's a reason why homo sapiens are the only uh walking mammals on earth on mm-hmm. their on their two feet because the last the previous evolution of humans gone they're, make they're gonzo play it they, as soon as homo sapiens came into the into the action who knows what happened to them maybe homo sapiens took them out we'll never know that and this film did a great job of paralleling the american military complex that you know americans have always been struggling with over the past 60 70 years and in terms of you know the sentinel program of america funding a program to fight our supposed en- enemies which is something you know, media and government has told us time and time again to fund these wars against these apparent enemies, which they themselves kind of create out of thin air. This happened so many times. And I think that this film did a great job of illustrating that problem within our own country really brilliantly. Yeah, and Trask is a great villain, but his Sentinels are the ultimate weapon. I love the opening of this movie. They oh, get yeah. right into it, right into the action. We have the sequence of Kitty Pride putting Bishop back in time to be able to... Uh, Get, warn them of when sentinels are coming so they can prepare to leave. It's really interesting concept. And the sentinels themselves are some of the most terrifying so- villain soldiers you'll ever see in a comic book movie or a superhero movie. You know, they're perfect killing machines for mutants. And they've used, or Trask 
after he captured Mystique, who has tried to assassinate him, or yeah. He, he, yeah. Mystique does assassinate him, yeah, yeah. and it speeds up the program that the Sentinel program that Trask was creating, and they use her as a test subject, all of her DNA and all of her body, to, her cells, her cells to figure out in her genes to create the Sentinels who become perfect killing machines and mutants because they can adapt to mutants and be the perfect counter to whatever their powers are. I really love the opening of this movie. It feels like it's like Terminator-esque, this dystopian future where some kind of hyper-technological hyper villain is just like taking over the entire world and just the last survivors are barely getting by day by day. I really love the setup and it's a really smart setup where they show an example of it's like a, a young kid, he finds like a, a, a little badge of the X, an X-Men badge in the rubble of some destroyed building, and then a sentinel finds him and kills him. It's a perfect example, one minute, of showing you what this world is. I think it was a really well-written and well-directed opening. And also, we get a real quick glimpse at great powers being used. Like, we see Iceman, we see Pyro, we see, we see enemy, yeah, full potential. past yeah. enemies who are working together, but also even though they we see their incredible powers on display, it's hopeless. It's futile. They can't, they don't stand a chance against the Sentinels, and the best they can do is quickly try to re get through the situation with Kitty Pride and Bishop surviving. Yeah, and with the thing with Days of Future Past is, I think that it's a highlight for Xavier's character, because by what I really love about the prequels is how we saw the origins because origin stories can be hit or miss and I think they did a great job with both Eric and Charles' origin stories and in terms of Charles in first class he's he what's great is that he made them he they made Charles the opposite of what you expected of him because Patrick Stewart's Xavier is a wise experienced man very humble filled with humility great leader very modest but in first class, he's this rowdy womanizer. He loves to drink and he loves to, you know, use kind of use his powers as advantage to like, you know, sleep with women or and, and help him in any situation. And he's kind of like a fun loving, having a good time kind of person. I really love how that's the starting off point for Charles. And then in Days of Future Past, because of the events of the first film, him losing his ability to walk and then becoming reliant on the medication that Hank created. He's an alcoholic. He wants to escape his past. He wants to basically run away from everything, and he's at his lowest point. And they really, it's great because Patrick, I mean, Xavier, old Xavier, when he's talking to Logan before he goes back in time, he's like, I was a different man back then, and I'm going to need you like you needed me. And you don't really know what that means. And then the first scene you see of Charles, and he's like an absolute wreck alcoholic, kicks Logan out immediately. I thought it was a really great turn for the character. Yeah, and he's suppressing his powers. And, yeah. Uh, I think one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie of Days of Future Past is when young Charles talks to old Charles, who's in the present timeline. And it's really great. You know, it's kind of like the grandfather paradox. Like, could he have possibly got his life together if he didn't speak to the old version of himself in this future timeline? If Wolverine didn't go back in time to get him to do this stuff? It's mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah. But before we go on more of that stuff, before we continue any further, I got to tell you all about MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. We just did an amazing Movie Posters giveaway contest. Our fan, Renee Moreno, won a free poster, and he chose Dark Knight. MoviePosters.com is sending that over to him ASAP. We're going to do another poster giveaway sometime in the, near, in the near future. But in the meantime, head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our special promo code 
Raiders 10 to get 10% off your order today. Movieposters.com has an amazing selection of movie posters, all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, pretty much every film and TV show imaginable, they have it in their stock. So again, head on over to Movieposters.com and use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. We have another amazing sponsor for all you screenwriters or people who are getting into screenwriting. You have to use Arc Studio Pro. It is the most efficient, streamlined, and elegant screenwriting software on the market. They have teamed up with us to offer a special deal of $30 off their membership. All you have to do is follow our link, arcstudiopro.com slash raiders. Again, arcstudiopro.com slash raiders to get that special deal. Perfect formatting when they're writing a script. They have these amazing features like apps for your desktop and phone, online collaboration with co-writers, super helpful outlining tools, revisionist management, and even links to feedback. Again, follow our link, arcstudiopro.com slash raiders to get $30 off your membership and start writing today. How about we dive into our intermission? Let's do it. Take a little break from superpowers and X-Men. We'll start with the movie quote competition. I have two, one from a fan, one from me. You break my record, now I break you like I did to your friend. You break your break my record. This is from Night Thrax. What's Night Thrax? Uh, an oh, it's all the person. <laughs> I was like, what movie is that? Night Thrax is an X Man. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's from Bloodsport. Oh, great Classic. one. Good one. All right, this one's for me. Look at this. Look at what they make you give. <laughs> Good impression. Thanks. Clive Owen and Born Identity. Nice, dude. Wow. <laughs> we, I can't believe we've never done the Born movies because- We have to. We've seen them so many goddamn times. Yeah. Like, we've actually watched the Born movies, like, a lot when we were kids. They're some of our most watched seen movies. Them, like, a yeah. hundred times each or something like well, that. Do y'all want to see a Born uh, series? Oh, they absolutely yeah. do. I, I would love absolutely. to do it. I would love to do All it. All right, your turn. All right, I have one from a fan. This is from Wayne Bickford. Oh, wait, this is a quiz. I'll get to that at the quiz point. So, here's my quote. At age 11, I audited my parents. Believe me, there was some discrepancy, and I was grounded. <laughs> uh, this is a good one. I actually got the poster on my wall. Royal Tenenbaums. Nah. No? Oh, shit. At, at, wait, wait. <laughs> let me say it again. You were so confident. <laughs> I thought it was Ben Stiller's character in nah. Royal Tenenbaums. At age 11, I audited my parents. Believe me, there were some discrepancies, and I was grounded. His character does something similar yeah, in that movie. What, yeah, but that's not his. He doesn't yeah, say that. Yeah, I, I got mixed up because the, the yeah. montage of like yeah, yeah. the kids when they're young. Yeah. It's just like Ben Stiller's character. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. It's Will Ferrell and the other guys. Oh my god, <laughs> Al, Alan Gamble. Wow, I was way too arrogant. Good right guess. There. It was a good guess. I thought one hundred percent. When you said your poster, I'm like, You're because not... oh, it's because he sues his dad. Yeah, he sued his dad. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, similar. All right, guess this movie release here. Winter's Bone. Great, oh, good, good movie. That great, was great Jennifer Lawrence, Lawrence breakout film. I'm going to go with 2010. Nice. Yes. Oh, yeah. Good job. Thank you. Saw that with mom. Oh, yeah, we yeah. did. That's right. Excellent movie. Here's my movie release here. The Scorpion King. 2003. 2002. Oh. Just off. All right, movie pop quiz time. Michael Fassbender has two Oscar nominations for acting. What films are they for? 12 Years a Slave. Yep. And, um, 
Inglorious Bastards. Steve Jobs. Oh, Steve Jobs. He's so good in that movie. Yeah. He's great. He was he was really great. Um, it was actually that movie was supposed to, originally it was set up to be David Fincher directing and Christian Bale starring as Steve Jobs. Oh wow, that would have been really good. But Sony didn't want to pay uh, David Fincher enough money. Anyways. All right, here's a quiz question from Wayne Bickford. Who was the actor that appeared in both Terminator and True Lies? Not Arnold Schwarzenegger. What other actor? Terminator and True Lies? Yep. Bill Paxton? Yeah. Nice. Good one. Nice. Nice. He's great in True Lies. He's so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love him in it. Oh, yeah, he's his partner, right? No, no. no. He plays the guy who's trying to sleep with his wife. Oh, pretending to yeah. Be, to, pretending to be a secret agent. That's right. That's yeah. right. He's awesome. He's got the mustache and like the, the, the nice car. It's great. All right. Um, Who's our hater? Oh, of the week? I got a quiz. Oh, you got a quiz? What was Dwayne Johnson's first acting role? It was a TV series. It was a very small role. It was a comedy series. Was it like a popular show? Very popular show. Very, very popular. Very popular. Sitcom? Yeah, it's a sitcom. It's not like a CBS sitcom. It's not like Friends. Yeah, it's not it's not like Friends, <laughs> but it's still a. It was a very funny comedy show. We watched it. Wow, what would that? It was his been? first acting role that not, that wasn't him on like television as a wrestler. Hmm. Wow. Um. It's not voice work for like. No. Cartoon. Yeah, he's appeared on screen, and his character's name was Rocky Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> um. I mean. I'm, I don't know, man. That '70s show. That '70s show. Yeah. What? Yeah, he he played a guy who was a wrestler on the show. What episode? Um, I didn't I didn't write down the episode name. Wow, it, it was, must have been like the yeah. first season or something like that. It was yeah, it was the um, early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. Man, I love that show. Yeah, we used to watch that after school all the time. Every, it was yeah. always on at like four o'clock. Yeah, and during the we week. would watch cartoons and then that '70s show is what we would do. We would like watch Dragon Ball Z. And then that seventy. Well, no, after. Dragon Ball Z was when like we were, we were in middle school. That's true. Yeah, high school was. Yeah, it was, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we, we changed. <laughs> we grew. We grew up. <laughs> we grew up. We grew up big time. <laughs> we were from Dragon Ball Z to that seventy show. We were more, and Seinfeld. We were more mature. All right. <laughs> all right. Haters of the week. What do we got? So we had a really bad hater. I posted a clip about um, Star Wars about Anakin and Kid Icarus. I had to block this guy because he he was gonna give us some. He was probably going to flag us and give us a bad review. But he wrote, I love how these videos use this for views. Like, it's a fake story from a drunk guy making movies he copied from everyone else. Sad. And then I wrote, at least I get views. And he said, <laughs> and he said you're just mad because it's true. And he spelled you, your, Y-O-U-R. And I, and I wrote, Y-O-U apostrophe R-E asterisk. <laughs> nice, dude. Burn. Sick burn, bro. Yeah, it's so sad that we're making videos. That for comment views. makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, some gu- drunk guy came up with the movie. I don't. I don't know what he was saying. What is he talking? And about? then I went on his TikTok, and he has like hundreds of videos of him obviously trying to get famous, and he only gets like 50, 60 views per video. Poor guy. So he's Poor in the guy. Yeah, I was just like, get out of here, bro. And then we have a unsubscribe hater. In our movie news episode from last Sunday, Valerie Bubbles wrote. You didn't say Predator Origins. <laughs> Unsubscribed <laughs> when we were talking about the, the origin. Prequel. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Sorry about that. I don't know how we, we missed did. that. Yeah, yeah we did we're, miss we're it. usually on one of those. <laughs> well, actually, if you think about it, like a Predator Origins movie, would have to take place on like the Predator planet. Yeah, that's true. Maybe that'll come next. Predator Origins planet. <laughs> All right. Our top supporters of this episode are two amazing five star reviews on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes. The first one is from Parker Paul. Parker Palasak. 
Sorry for if I mispronounced that. This is by far the best movie podcast or podcast in general that I have ever listened to with two hosts that have an actual knowledge of film overall. It only makes this podcast more enjoyable and rewarding to listen to. Keep up the good work, guys. You are killing it. P.S. When you get the chance, please check out and talk about The Last of Us video games in terms of plot, character, themes, and much more. It is one of the best storylines of all time. Please check it out or I will unsubscribe. <laughs> JK, love you guys. We're going to buy a video game console now. And then from TX Diesel. My new favorite podcast, this podcast, is awesome. I love finding out behind-the-scenes details. Keep up the great work, or I'll unsubscribe. <laughs> Your friend from West Texas. Thanks so much for those amazing reviews, everybody. Thank you, guys. Um, what else do we got? So, on this day in film and TV history, or film history, November 18th is today's date. In 1928, Walt Disney's Steamboat Willie was released, the first Mickey Mouse sound cartoon. In 1959, Ben-Hur premieres. In 1992, Malcolm X, directed by Spike Lee, starring Denzel Washington and Angela Bassett, is released in the U.S. In 1994, Star Trek Generations is premiered, starring Patrick Stewart. That's a TV show, right? Yeah. I believe it was the film or... No, it's a movie. Mm. Oh, cool. Yeah. They made a couple movies. Yeah. Yeah. And then, happy birthday to Owen Wilson. Wow. 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 It's my birthday. Wow. My stream recommendation is Big Daddy on Amazon Prime. It was just a good time. <laughs> I have, it's called The Hunt on Amazon Prime, and it is a great Dutch film starring the excellent Mads Mikkelsen. Amazing, amazing movie. I, I read somewhere, or, or someone left a comment where you just say mad, not Mads. Like Mad Mikkelsen. Oh, and I'm sorry, it's De Denmark. Mad. Okay, so you don't I, say the S? I think it's it's pronounced mad. Mad Mikkelsen. Mad Mikkelsen. Mad Mikkelsen. Someone said something like that in a comment. I looked it up. I think it was correct. It, was it like, sounds, I mean, I don't know anything about Danish. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like Danish. <laughs> <laughs> the dessert. One of my favorite desserts. The dessert is great. <laughs> Excellent dessert. All right, let's get back into the, the X-Men episode. Um, that just made me hungry. Now, let's, let's finish up with the villains and talk about the villain in Dark Phoenix, which the full villain, the, the big baddie, is Vuk. Or is it Vuk? Fuck. Is it? Well, I gotta double check the spelling. It's V U K. Vuk. 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 Yeah, Vuk. It's like super bad. I think it's Vuk. We actually arrested somebody whose name was legally Fuck. It was with a PH. Let's say Vuk so we don't get in trouble and flagged on YouTube. We'll say Vuk. Yeah. So Vuk, who is a shape shifting alien, leader of the Dabari, and Vuk uses the alias of Margaret Smith, played by Jessica Chastain. To have semen appear human or semen appear like a, a mutant or whatever. And Vuk's goal is to obviously kill the X-Men. But Vuk will also manipulate and corrupt Jean Grey so that she, with the Phoenix Force and the power that she has inside, returns Earth into a new planet for the Dabari. So basically Terraforming. Man, of, man of Steel. Terraforming. With an alien instead of a giant machine. Again, the, the stakes are so big. <laughs> and uh, apparently, so they originally filmed that she was going to be a Kroll from Captain Marvel, the same kind of alien race to crawl that the shape-shifting green aliens, but because Captain Marvel did it first, and technically both studios have the right, kind of the rights to those characters, um, Sony, I mean, Fox had to change it, do reshoots, because they didn't want to confuse anyone, and so they changed Jessica Chastain's character from a crawl to this other alien race. So that, and then they did, they did like two months of reshoots to change it all. Um, It's called Scroll. 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 I'm did sorry. Did you even see Captain Marvel? <laughs> <laughs> I saw it. 
I saw it. Yeah, okay. I'm not a comic book guy. Goddamn man. <laughs> Can't even get the scroll right. Ben Mendelsohn's a man. He plays the he plays the lead scroll. Yeah, he's a scroll. <laughs> not a crawl. Was it a crawler donut? <laughs> you and the desserts today. James has the biggest sweet tooth I've ever it's, seen it's in my life. Bad. It's pretty bad. He always he's always like, I need some chocolate or I need something sweet. <laughs> not always. I need to have something sweet to end my night. <laughs> I need to go to bed having something sweet. Sounds like you have an eating disorder. It's not an eating disorder. It's called being a fat kid at heart and having a being a fat kid when I was a child. Oh my god, that's funny. But anyways, at least I got cr- scroll right <laughs> after you looked at it online. Nuh-uh. tell me you didn't look at it. I was double checking. While I was talking, I saw you staring at your screen because for 20 I was, seconds because straight. I was, yeah, because I needed confirmation. See, I like to look up facts and do oh, my so research. You didn't know 100%. You I didn't wanted know. to 100% know that I was correct. I knew it was scroll. That's why I looked it up. I said it's definitely not scroll. <laughs> There's definitely an S in there. He's missing an S. Let me double check to make sure I'm correct. Whatever, man. <laughs> <laughs> See, I look. I like to look up the information. Anyways, on Google, misinformation. Crawl. <laughs> Just, I love Jessica Chastain. She's one of my favorite actors. But again, this movie has another villain problem. And again, they messed up the Dark Phoenix saga story because in For this the third time, in this, yeah, in this film, I mean, the Jean Grey character in this series, she didn't have the split personality. It was more of her being corrupted and struggling with her past, especially her her causing her mother's death by accident when she was a child. I think it's a great opening scene. This movie has a very strong opening. Yeah, it's it's very yeah. uh, grounded, you know, the yeah. story. And it, it opens with Jean Grey in the backseat of her car, the little kid, and she accidentally causes the car to crash, kills her mother, and then ultimately her father blames her for her mother's death, and that causes the emotional trauma within her even more so, and that's what really breaks her from reality and begins allowing the Phoenix power to unleash within her but it didn't have the split personality persona that I think the Jean Grey character should have. Which they yeah talked about in the first trilogy. Exactly. So I think that not having that aspect to the character was a misstep in terms of portraying Jean Grey properly. And then Ches- Jessica Chastain's character, again, reminds you of Apocalypse where like she has this unbelievable power and strength kind of unexplained and just like a little, again, too repetitive for what the powers of the villain is. Yeah, and again, Apocalypse was the perfect opportunity to explore the Dark Phoenix the correct way, I think, with making her the counter to Apocalypse with the the powers to defeat Apocalypse, but also have her going through that split personality disorder kind of going on with Jean and the Dark Phoenix inside of her, have that be the emotional backbone of the film, and then have her at the end with a showdown versus Apocalypse rather than everybody fights Apocalypse and everyone does stuff except for Jean Grey. She never really uses her powers too much besides to to mess with people's minds when they're were running around trying to be secretive and like the plant inside the trucks and, yeah. and the helicopter and stuff like that. Aside from that, she doesn't really do much of anything until Professor X is like, Jean, open it up. Let's go. Let's do this. Kill Apocalypse. We unleash your powers. And it's like the last five minutes of the movie. Yeah, exactly. And then in in Dark Phoenix, she absorbs the Phoenix Force in space. And this is where they could have been like, the Phoenix Force is its own personality battling Jean within the mind, trying to gain control. Like Smeagol and Gollum, having these two minds within the body of Jean Grey, the new Phoenix Force mind, I think that would have been a really great take on the character. Yeah, just make Jean the big bad. Yeah. It's okay. We don't need like a separate storyline, separate villains to make you empathize with Jean Grey or the Dark Phoenix. The Dark Phoenix is a great villain if it's mm-hmm. just Dark Phoenix. I think they just 
I don't know why in three movies they didn't do it. It makes it really. They always get thrown a bunch of other ones. Yeah. So I think it was another disappointing, underwhelming, a part of this franchise. Although there is some good action in this movie, I think that Simon Kinberg did a good job of making the action more gritty, especially in terms of Magneto. Like that scene, the fight on the train, the way he's um, fighting the, the the soldiers, he's like ripping apart metal, bashing it into people, and like you see a lot of like like on screen violence that you never really saw, like people getting stabbed or or like a, a, a giant chunk of metal like going into someone's chest. I like that aspect to the action. I think he really made it a lot more gritty, which was a benefit to this film for sure. And I do like how when Gene and Magneto are going at it, and we see how powerful Gene is compared to even Magneto, who is a super powerful being. And for him, he's having so much he's struggling performance issues. So, he's struggling. He's not having performance issues. You can just see he's struggling just to keep up with Gene, who's like doing everything with ease. So we see how truly powerful she really is compared to someone like Magneto. Yeah. So again, there are good elements to this movie. Um, and now I feel like this is the fully formed Professor X at the start of Dark Phoenix because he lost his hair in uh, Apocalypse because of like the the blending that was going on when Apocalypse was trying to take over his consciousness. He needs to get some Propecia yeah. or something, bro. <laughs> no, it just came right out. He got rid of the hair. Like, Apocalypse, that's the problem. If you if you want to be Apocalypse, you're going to be bald. That's the, that's the issue. So I think that in Dark Phoenix, uh, Xavier has finished his growth. Shouldn't he have no eyebrows? Just kidding, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have alopecia. He's just got falling, you know? <laughs> but yeah, technically that should have happened. But um, I think that Eric is still going through transformation, which I think was a mistake in terms of the trajectory of the franchise. I think if Xavier is his fully formed self, Magneto should be his fully formed self too. Same thing with Jean Grey. They seem to be so afraid to make Dark Phoenix the main villain. Like they, they're so afraid to make Eric and Magneto a fully fledged villain in all the prequel films. It's like all four films were dealing with the moral ambiguity of Magneto. Like we get it. He's he's a complicated character. He's complex. He's probably the most interesting in terms of character development and plot wise. But just make him a bad guy in one of them. Yeah, I mean in X two, it gets to the point where Magneto tricks everyone and he's trying to kill every human alive. That's what you wanted, but you never got that extent of Magneto in the prequels. Even though we thought that's what was going to happen after yeah. First Class, because at the end of First Class, he tries to kill all those other humans on the ships when yeah. he's redirecting the missiles. Obviously, he stops because. Uh, Rose Byrne's character Moira, she shoots bolts at him, which he deflects and accidentally hits Professor X in the back, rendering him paralyzed from the waist down. That's the only thing that stops him from killing all the humans on those ships. Otherwise, he would have killed them all. Yeah. And that's what I love about Magneto. Now he's fully formed, and it seems like when they went into rewriting for went into writing for Apocalypse, they're like, let's go back in time and have him seem ambiguous again. We'll give him a family so he's a good guy and he gets bad and corrupted again, but then redeems himself. They kept trying to make him a heroic figure, where in the original trilogy, he's not heroic. He's a villain, but he's a, a anti-hero. great anti-hero. And he has a lot of gray area, but he still is a fully-fledged villain in those movies. But what I do like and what I, I think is great with with Magneto and becoming a villain is we learn the origins of him, obviously at the concentration camps and everything he went through and how he was turned into a villain by the people who controlled him. Oh yeah. By definitely. the Nazis, which yeah. is great. We understand that. And that's what makes you empathize with the character. But you know, at, at some point I think just make him a big bad, just yeah. make it him just fully evil, make him full form Magneto, which we got in three movies. I think it could have worked great if apocalypse was actually Magneto's villain movie and he was killed by Jean Grey. 
And then Jean Grey is the solo villain in the last one, in Dark yeah, Phoenix. I think worked. that could have worked really could've well. Worked better. Yeah. I mean, because, like, you can kill them off because it doesn't really matter with, like, the movies have, like, three different dimensions and storylines yeah. yeah. because in Days of Future Past, once Logan success successfully does everything and, and prevents the Sentinel program from being started, obviously with the help of Mystique, everything seems like honky-dory and, like, the best. I want to watch a movie of that X-Men universe where Scott's alive, Gene's alive, they're all hanging out, Logan's a professor. It seems like a really warm ending. That's, yeah, the end of, the ending of X, of Days of Future Past, I, it's my favorite ending of all the movies because it's a happy ending. You know what I mean? All these characters got, you know, Gene Grey is still just Gene Grey. When Logan re returns to his mind, his mind returns to his body, um, and Xavier's, like, realizes that the, the, um, Logan from the future is finally back in his body, and he's like, "Let me fill you in on." And he's like, "I'm." He's like, "I need to." I'm filling in on the last twenty years. Scott's there. They have that great scene where uh, Logan's about to like touch Jean Grey, and then Scott grabs his hand. He's like, "Easy, <laughs> easy, Tiger." I really. He's like, "It's good to see you." Scott's yeah. like, "Okay." <laughs> so I really love that ending to Days of Future Past, and I think that the conclusion in the Dark Phoenix in the Dark Phoenix film just was not even comparable to that ending. Well, you can also say that Days of Future Past becomes a big bad villain film for Magneto, you know? Yeah. I, actually, I, I want to retract what I was saying earlier. So this one, he becomes was, full yeah, villain. I didn't full, want to correct you. He becomes you. full villain. You can yeah. correct me, man. It's okay. That's what well, we already talked about it earlier. Yeah, because he puts yeah. all the metal inside the Sentinels and he gets control over the Sentinels to try to destroy and take over the humanity and, and the world and broadcast himself that it's time for mutants to rise up. Yeah, so he does become a big bad for sure. But he's he's a good, he's like with the heroes for most of that movie. Yeah. Where I want a movie where Fastbender's Magneto is the big bad of the entire movie. For sure. That's what I wanted. Because he is bad, yeah, in this timeline where he's in the Pentagon and they have to break him out. But he does have the ambiguity where Charles is trying to convert him back to the yeah. to, to the to the force, the good side. Yeah, and then Quicksilver has always been a highlight of the movies he's in. But I will say that in Dark Phoenix, they did another Quicksilver scene. It just wasn't the same during the space shuttle when it's um uh, when it's exploding. And he, he, it's another great slow-mo scene where he saves everyone inside the ship, but it's not, it doesn't even compare to the Quicksilver scene in Days of Future Past and the Quicksilver scene in Apocalypse, which are both really great, visually stunning, so well directed, and very funny. The, the Apocalypse Quicksilver scene is hysterical. It's so much fun. Uh, yeah. I love the Days of Future Past one where this is where Quicksilver has to this is the one where he stops no this is where breaks out Magneto. breaks out Magneto yeah. out of the Pentagon awesome awesome scene yeah. sequence where he does that with them he's super fun and then the other one is when he stops the he saves everyone from the explosion yeah. at the Xavier Institute besides his brother who was at the center of the blast radius and that one's funnier especially the shot where he grabs Hank and then Hank's face is just like frozen with this funny face yeah his skin's like flapping I think the funniest part is yeah. the dog with the pizza oh yeah yeah, yeah yeah <laughs> so that one's super funny and the quick server scenes in both those movies were highlights of the movies but then the quick silver scene in Dark Phoenix kind of just like not really that memorable, honestly. Yeah. But I do love I love Quicksilver. I wish he was used more for sure. Yeah. I also wish in um Apocalypse he used used in Magneto's emotional backbone storyline where he's Magneto's son, we learn. Yeah. But I was I was disappointed that Quicksilver never tells Magneto that he's his son. You know, you think he's gonna tell him and obviously I think if he tells him sooner the the day would be saved quicker, probably. <laughs> but it was really disappointing that Quicksilver never told Magneto because Magneto went full bad because of the death of his family. 
but now he still has family. He doesn't know it yet, but he has a son. That's what, I mean, <clears throat> that was a mistake with the Magneto storyline for sure. Now, before Disney bought Fox, they had conditions for, I mean, Fox using Quicksilver. One of the conditions was not revealing that Magneto was his father. So that's why you don't find out until Dark Phoenix when Disney already owned Fox. So they, I think the filmmakers wanted to show that in Days of Future Past, but they weren't allowed to by and, Disney. And probably does that have to have to do with a Deadpool and the little cameo of all the X-Men, including Quicksilver exactly. and the Xavier Institute? That's why there's only a couple of characters in that cameo. And that's why Wanda Maximoff's not in it. Although you see the Maximoff... Um, Mailbox, mm-hmm. we, he and he's holding his little sister. They do, he, they don't say her name as Wanda, gotcha. because of the co ownership with Disney and Fox at the time of the characters. Yeah, let's talk about Mystique for a little bit because she has a ton to do in this prequel franchise. Well, the first three films for sure, and I like the first one because we get the origins of Mystique, Magneto, and Charles, and we, we get learn- little little Mystique, little little baby. <laughs> Mystique, little, little, little kid Mystique, super cutie, and then little little Charles and Mystique was trying to steal from Charles as a kid. And Rich Charles. We, yeah, Richie now we, Rich over we here. We learned he's got a ton of money. Like yeah. that institute, he didn't build that institute, he just grew up it. in it. <laughs> grew up in that place. Like, man, must be nice, bro. <laughs> At least he uses his wealth for good things, though. That's true. You know, he's helping the world. Yeah. He's trying to create peace among humans and mutants. But I love that, that moment, and we learn how... They grew up together as like brother and sister in a way, but also in X-Men Days of Future Past when they're adults, it seems like Mystique always is is trying to get Charles to like look at her, like recognize her, maybe intimately. Like she's asked like, would you date me? But she because she wants someone to accept her for who she truly is when, true she's, blue. when she's true blue. <laughs> it sounds like a hair dye, like true blue today, L'Oreal. <laughs> Color yourself Mystique. in your kitchen. <laughs> Mystique. And so Mystique, she's constantly also with Hank, going back and forth with wanting to hide from the world with her her blonde human form as Jennifer Lawrence or showing her true blue form to the world, which she's not fully comfortable with. And her and Hank and X-Men First Class are excited about the potential of him creating that serum where they can hide their true identities. But I think with the influence of Eric on Mystique in the first film in X-Men First Class, where she starts to embrace who she truly is, whereas Xavier thought it best for her to hide that from the world, Magneto tells her that she should never hide that and she's perfect. It's a great scene where it's a contrasting of scenes where Mystique she go she kind of turn goes on to Charles and says, ask basically, would you be intimate with me or would you date with date me? And Charles is like, You're you're like my sister. And then also, um he he wouldn't it's the form that also is an issue with him. Whereas Well, because the first thing he says as as blue. Yeah, as blue. And then when she does it to Eric in contrast. Um, he says, first of all, he says she's too young, which is why he wouldn't be with her, which is a really noble way of looking at it because she's like, that's the only reason. Like, it's because of my age. And then she turns into the human Jennifer Lawrence form and an older version. It's Rebecca Romain. Rebecca Romain, yeah. And she's like, how about now? And he's like, I would only want to date, be with the real mystique, the real one. And then she turns to her real form, the blue form, true blue. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, and then he calls her perfection. And so that's he's the first person to ever accept who she really is. Well, Charles does when they're children, like when he tells her, like, when, yeah, when and his kitchen, immediate like, reaction. You, you don't yeah. have to hide. And then he sees her blue, and and she's like, "You're not afraid of me." He's like, "Of course I'm not afraid of you. You look awesome." Yeah, is that true, Blue? <laughs> <laughs> but again, he doesn't. He doesn't accept her like in her 
in adulthood as, intimately is like a yeah something, he also thinks like a partner he, he encourages her to hide herself yeah he's part of that problem and conflict within her just like hank and you know she's very flirtatious with hank and obviously they got something going on but it's really eric who catches her eye eventually because he wants her to be true to herself and you know mutant and proud yeah and she and when i i really love the creation of beast in this in this movie where he wants to create the serum to hide his feet because right now at this point of his mutation only his feet are really a beast-like form and they aren't even blue and then when he gives himself the serum his entire body changes and he becomes blue i really love the creation because he's trying to fix himself and mystique is trying to make him realize you are you're this is your true self this is who you were always meant to be like this is your full mutation in, in complete effect. Yeah, and this is when Raven stops going by Raven and starts to become Mystique. Mystique. When they all start to give themselves their fun names. Oh, yeah, this is great. The, the cast of X-Men First Class is also it's really good, too. There's a ton of other characters. A lot of young there. actors. Zoe Caleb, Kravitz is in this. Is Caleb Landry-Drone. Morgan Jones, Lilly, Rose yeah. Byrne, uh, Beth Goddard. Uh, she plays Xavier's mother, Lawrence Belcher. The, the dude from Get Out is in this as well. The um the brother. Uh, Caleb I already Land said it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's his name. Nicholas Holt is obviously phenomenal. Irai Gathegi, so really, really good young cast in this movie of the young of the young uh, mutants. Yeah, they they did a great ensemble. Fun to see someone like Zoe Kravitz so young and in, in a major role. And I think I was kind of missing some of them in the next movies. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? You never saw Zoe Kravitz again. You never saw a couple of these characters again, so that was kind of underwhelming that you didn't see them again show up. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that for sure. And also. It, I think Bishop is a character that should have been shown in this one. Um, Psylocke could have been good to see earlier on. So I think that in their choice of mutants in first class, I think that there were a few that weren't shown that they probably should have thrown in earlier. And again, and back to Mystique, X-Men Days of Future Past, again, arguably one of the lead characters. She's dealing with the fact that she's trying to take out Trask. She's trying to save the mutant race. She has a very Magneto-esque role, but a different way about it. You know, she she wants to stop and save mutants. You know, Trask is experimenting on them and trying to take their powers and, and create the Sentinel program. Mystique wants to kill Trask, but she doesn't understand. And it's a bit naive that she thinks that just because she kills one man that everything would stop and all mutants would be saved. She doesn't, she doesn't get what the impact of her actions will have like the other characters know will happen because Logan's been sent back in time. Yeah, it's ir ironic because the Sentinel program was already rejected, but then... Her her killing and, and her killing Trask is what and motivates the government trying to finally to approve Trask. it. Yeah, so, try, trying, yeah, to trying it. to kill him. So that is ultimately, ironically, what caused the government to fund the program. Well, yeah. So she kills Trask before Logan is back, but she tries. Yeah. She fails the assassination attempt. Yeah. And her getting caught on film is basically the world's unmasking a, a revelation that mutants exist so she becomes the face of mutants in a way which carries over into x-men apocalypse where now she's a hero to mutants because now they see someone like them um in, in the world and she's powerful and she's someone that all these mutants look up to as, as a hero and like a lot of talks them, a lot of them talk about how she changed her their lives and she's running this like kind of she's probably this, like underworld smuggling of mutants to get them to safety sort of like a maybe a reference to the underground railroad in america um but yeah the speeches are a bit much there's like again 17 <laughs> pep talks that mystique gives and every and by the fifth one i'm like is she doing it again like jesus <laughs> how many do we need like i love her but like god damn do they really need this much motivation <laughs> <laughs> and it ends with it too or no is that 
Days of Future Past. All right, camera. No, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some stuff like that. I think it's Apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, yeah Apocalypse. It ends yeah. with her giving like a like teaching the uh, X Men. And that's ultimate. Like she has so much to do in Apocalypse, but then in Dark Phoenix, it was just so disappointing. She died so quickly. It kind of felt like what really already. And I I I, I think I have to be right about. Jennifer Lawrence might not have wanted to be in the entire production. Oh, you're 100% right. Yeah, thank you. I, pre- I appreciate that. I also like Scott Summers in the prequels because Ty Sheridan is a great actor who we talked about a few times. And he was just, we talked about Ready Player One. He's the lead in that. I think he's perfect as Cyclops. You know, this young, cocky kid who discovers his powers by accident and from going through puberty in high school in that bathroom when he takes out that bully with his, his eyes. And we get to learn how Hank, who all, we also learn is super, like, Invented everything. He invented yeah, the cerebro, jet. the jet. He, he did the goggles for Cyclops. We learned with him. Twenty-one year old making those. Well, that's part of his uh, mutation, right? He's being oh, super is, smart. Oh, is it? I'm, oh. Pre- I'm pretty sure that he, he, it might be part of his mutation. I can't be sure, but he's that would make sense. Highly intelligent yeah. person in the X Men franchise. He's like Tesla, kind of. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's like Elon Musk, sort of. But um, uh, you could say that Ty Sheridan, um, he looks the most like his previous version of his character he you, he seems like he's a younger version of james marston yeah, it could, it could be they definitely sure. you can kind of relate yeah. yeah i guess um uh, what's her name from game of thrones sophie turner she yeah i think anyone just sees someone with red hair it's like oh we could fill her in as the ginger like they don't oh, look a ton gingers. of life but yeah they, they don't look, look anything alike yeah, they, yeah. they really don't look at fam key and her no not yeah. at all they don't even look related at all but no I, I do i do like the introduction of cyclops and he's always he's always one of my favorites as a kid cyclops and Especially in the cartoon, yeah, the animated and, series, and like we said in the last episode, he was so underutilized in the third film. He has like two scenes, and in these films, and I, he screams on a cliff. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but in these films, I really like how much he was able to use his powers and how he's related to um, what's uh, what's his brother's name? Oh, um, what's his name? I can't remember. I can't remember. His brother is the the guy from First Class. Yeah, and they seem to have the same kind of energy that comes out of them. But with Scott, it comes out of his eyes. It's like genetic or something. Their powers are similar. It's a mutation. Um, <laughs> yeah, but Ty's great. In it. I love his his Ray Ban, the original Ray Ban glasses that yeah. Hank makes for him. Obviously, sponsored that. Yeah. Um, and then he gets the evolution of the the ones where he can test touch the button. Yeah. yeah. But like, I like the character because it's really interesting. Where he just wraps his eyes and keeps them closed at all times before he finds it safe to open them up. And everyone thinks he's a freak, but Gene's like, "No, I'm the freak here, bro." <laughs> <laughs> but they do fun. Teen stuff. They go to the mall. Yeah, with the uh, Nightcrawler, yeah. and you know they do stuff. They do help save the day. Although Logan's cameo in this movie oh, is yeah, yeah. epic. You know he's the one who who saves everyone. He kills all the guards in that facility to As help others escape. Yeah. And Stryker gets away obviously because he's a coward. But Logan is savage in this movie. It's it's like good PG thirteen Logan action for sure. It's pretty close to Berserker mode. Yeah, it's it's close to it. But um, it shows how much of a powerful weapon he is. He's in that giant cage. It's like the same cages that the Velociraptors are in in Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what the hell's inside that thing? They're feeding him cows. At first, I thought it was Juggernaut. Then I'm like, oh, I bet it's Wolverine. <laughs> feeding him whole, whole lambs. <laughs> but I, and... I, it is interesting they did tie how they tied together how Logan had some of his memories, just moments of them and flashes of them because Gene... Uh, a la- touched his head and gave him some of the memories, like his name. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the, that's the one thing she gave him, and then like, just like the flashes of his surgery, because he had no idea who he was or what he was. And he just like kind of came out of that cage, like a Velociraptor, ready to kill. Yeah, everything. <laughs> it's pretty savage, pretty epic. And again, shows you that he is the fan favorite. But you can tell it's PG thirteen. There's like no blood anywhere. There's like yeah. one shot of blood splattering on like a wall or a floor. But he should be 
covered in blood. Oh, yeah. Caked he's it. hacking people up. That's what I, I want a really bloody Wolverine movie. Like, well, so, Logan was pretty great. Yeah, yeah, but it's still like super bloody. Lack of there. Yeah, yeah you're right. The the so ima- the imagine, effects are great, but the imagine lack of- imagine a scene like the old boy hammer scene. Imagine Logan taking out a room full of sixty guys. So no, it'd be like uh, the crazy eighty eight scene in Kill Bill yeah. with Logan would be great yeah. because yeah. there's a ton of blood in that scene. That would be epic. I want that. You're a sick person. But it's never gonna happen because Disney owns it now. You just want to watch blood spewing out of people. You're weird, man. Yeah, it's great. It's not. <laughs> don't ever count on it happening though. Marvel Disney has control of it, so it's always gonna be PG-13 now. Yeah, but I'm sure they'll do a good job with it. Hopefully, if they ever revive the character, they're gonna revive him. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He's the lead basically for eight of these movies. Yeah, Disney likes making money. They're gonna revive him. All right. Um, do you have anything else you want to talk about? I think we covered everything. All I have is just some trivia facts. Yeah, let's let's do some trivia, bro. But ultimately, you know, I think this move, this series, the prequel series, has the best X Men movie in Days of Future Past. Ultimately, even the even the misses, they have some really great elements to them. The cast is great. Directing mostly is fantastic, and there are hits in some. There are misses, but I think it's still a great series. Now, some trivia. To prepare for his role as Charles Xavier. James McAvoy shaved his head on his own. He soon learned that the filmmakers wanted Xavier to actually have a full head of hair during the prequel. Throughout the first month of filming, McAvoy had to wear hair extensions because he was bald. He finally shaved his head for X-Men Apocalypse. Nightcrawler from X-Men is actually Mystique's son, according to Marvel Comics canon. Although they barely interact during the movie X-Men First Class, Azazel and Mystique eventually have the child together, Kurt Wagner, a.k.a. Nightcrawler. He appears in X2, played by Alan Cumming, and again, X-Men Apocalypse in Dark Phoenix, played by Cody Smith-McPhee. Oh, so that's why he's blue. Makes sense now. In X-Men Days of Future Past, the script called for Logan to wake up in 1973 wearing boxer shorts. However, Hugh Jackman vetoed this, saying in in favor of waking up nude, saying, in Australia... If you're next to a really good-looking girl, you're not getting out of the bed with boxer shorts on or anything at all. Sir Patrick Stewart and Sir Ian McKellen were performing in a touring production of Waiting for Godot when Brian Singer approached the actors about reprising their roles as Professor X and Magneto. According to McKellen, both men were completely shocked as they thought they had passed the roles on to James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender and would never again play the characters. Both men were very delighted to return to their most popular roles and to also work with the younger actors playing the same characters. For Quicksilver scene in Days of Future Past, the filmmakers recorded the scene in a very special camera format of 3,600 3, frames per second. This means that Quicksilver moved 150 times faster than the normal speed of a person. The camera was used to record close-ups and movements of Evan Peters as well as the guards he beat up. According to visual effects supervisor John Dijkstra, the biggest problem with depicting Emma Frost's diamond body in X-Men First Class without looking like she was made of jello or the polygon model of a human being. The morphed Frost was rotomated into January Jones in the live-action plates while still retaining the actress's eyes and lips. As the character kept on going in and out of her diamond form, a motion capture tracking suit could not be employed, so the effects team used a jumpsuit covered in mirrors. Hmm, pretty smart. The movie X-Men Dark Phoenix is one of the studio's biggest failures of all time. The film grossed only $250 million against a budget of well over $200 million. Dark Phoenix ended up losing the studio 
$120 million, making it the second lowest grossing X-Men film of all time, only behind The New Mutants. All right, that wraps our X-Men prequel franchise episode. Thanks so much for tuning into this. Hope you enjoyed X-Men week. And as much as we did, it was a lot of fun to talk about these characters. Finally. Yeah, I forget how good some of them are. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. four very good movies in, in these. Yeah. Uh, we got to do like a solo Logan episode at some oh, point. Yeah. And, we'll, you know, we'll tackle some more stuff in the future. But thanks so much for tuning into this episode wherever you're listening around the world. Make sure to check out the online podcast master course that we just launched. Again, go to our website if you want to check out the link for that or podcastmasterclass.teachable.com. Sign up today. Learn everything behind the scenes that goes into our production and our show to help you get on a path of having a successful podcast like ours. Thanks so much for all of your support around the world. Bye, everyone. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.